Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. So funky. Today we are joined by an old confidant, comrade, uh, colleague, um, Harlemite. If you watched my special, I Be Knowing, at the end, I yell, Harlem! And that is solely because this person right here was like, I dare you. Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary folks, please give it up. We are joined by... Well, I met you first as an MC, but you are so many more things. Immortal technique. Welcome to Small Doses. We are Thank you. very you. happy to have you. I want to let y'all know already, strap in, because I already know how this is going to go, and I'm not going to end up doing a lot of talking. Uh, because the person that is is here is one of the most loquacious uh, people I know, but like with actual, <laughs> with actual like content. You know, because a lot of motherfuckers out here running their mouths and saying nothing. But we decided to name this episode Side Effects of Answering the Call because, uh, Tech, I feel like, you know, you are somebody who has made a life's mission of doing just that. And so I want to get into not only what that means, but why there's so many calls that need to be answered. But first, you said that we need to talk about how we met. (laughs) So we could have that discussion. I'm not going to do this podcast if you're going to talk like this the whole time, because. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everybody got the villain voice, right? And then they have the regular voice that they have before they turn into either the villain or the hero. And this is the regular voice. Hello. How are you doing, everybody? Pleasure to make your acquaintance. And then when you finally meet him, it's like, all right, well, this is what it is. (laughs) So, so gentlemen, uh, ladies and whoever is out there, however you choose to identify, um, I met Amanda Diva at this why I don't know her as Amanda Seal. I met Amanda Diva at a, um, a college. I believe it was Purchase, right? Yes, that's right. And when I was there, um, I made, I was handing out CDs and what I, I was trying to sell CDs. And I think that, you know, she was someone who, who was from Harlem. I didn't know that at the time, was from Harlem, was living in Harlem. And she made some kind of comment that I thought, was snarky and I made an ignorant sexist remark and she checked me immediately. I do do you remember the remark? Yeah, I asked her if she was on her period. <laughs> she, she went she went ballistic on me. Um and mind you, there's I, I I'm not sitting here making excuses because I was 24, 25. I feel like you're supposed to be an adult and at least my mom trained me better than to be out there talking to people like that. But I think one of the things that happened was that, um, you know, I, through a, a course of time, apologized. And on top of it, I remember 
that I wrote her a letter explaining, like a real letter, not like an email, not something else. I found out where she lived or whatnot. I don't know how I got the address. Listen, I'm a... I genuinely don't know how you got the address. I know know I'm a person of many means. So (laughs) I wrote her a real letter. And in the letter that I wrote by hand, not typed out and signed at the end, a letter wrote by hand, I apologized for my behavior. And I presented her with my work. And I said, this is who I am. And I apologize if I came off the wrong way because that's not how I, I, a man's supposed to present himself or whatnot. And ever since then, she's given me a little bit more leeway in my wild ass out of control ways to have discussions and to talk with me and to enlighten me. And also to kind of watch this culture that we have grow and metamorphosize and also splinter out and become lots of different things. And I literally remember the moment you left New York and you were like, yo, I'm going out to Cali. I'm going to, I'm going to do it big out there. And yo, I was rooting for you and you can't say, you gotta be like, oh man, he jumped on a bandwagon. No, from right then and even back, I was like, yo, get it. Go out. If it's not popping here, go out there, do whatever you need to do. And then like low and people imagine that someone goes from New York to Cali and just falls into fame. And that's actually not what happened at all. It's a series of massive failures that a person encounters in order for them to be where they at. You know what I mean? I am a person who, you know, has learned through nothing but failures. And I think that one thing I've learned lately, or, or at least put into perspective, is that when you have nothing but success, then you don't take a proper account of yourself. Facts. And you say to yourself, oh, it doesn't matter how I talk to people. I'm winning. I'm making money. Or I don't care how I treat people. Or I don't care if I, I cause divisiveness among these people or that. As long as I, I can feed the fan base and get money and move ahead, then I consider it a, a step forward. When in reality, you may be diverting yourself from the path that you really want. And I feel like that is something I had to face and come to terms with and say, wait you know, am I honestly being the best person that I could be? Like, have I have I taken the lessons that I've learned and applied them properly towards the life that I have? Because it's one thing to win and to get what you want. But it's another thing to get it the way you want to get it and not accept any other way to get it. And in real life, you have to sacrifice to get the things you want. So, you know, you, you want to carry the ring, right? Because I know you're a sci-fi nerd. If you want to carry the ring, it's going to cost you a finger. Right. You're going to be you at the end of the movie. You're going to end up with with nine fingers and you can't stay for the credits. You got to get on the boat. And get the fuck out of here. <laughs> for those of you all who are listening, he's referring to Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yes. Right. Which I yes. know she loves. Right. Which is another thing <laughs> because I, I, I can find and relate to things. And I remind people is because when I was a little kid, my mom got me into like sci fi movies because she used to make popcorn um, at home in Harlem. And then we would go to the theater and we would see three movies at a time. That's it. And we, she would buy the snacks at the store, stuff it in the pocket, yes. and we out. And that was, that, that was what we did. So I think for me, um, you know, I, I got introduced to American culture at a very uh, early age because I wasn't born here. I was born in, uh, in Peru. And growing up in Harlem was very interesting because I also experienced something that you and, and a lot of other people that are watching this experience is that I do not know how it is 
in the white or Asian community, but I know that in the black and Latino community, when you smart, people think that you soft. And that caused me to have to fight people a lot in my life. And I, I tell you right now, I know I have the reputation of a bully in school. People saw my name and so I threw Lynn Manuel Miranda in a trash can in high school and Chris Hayes and Let's all these stop. other people. Wait, what? But, but here, wait, wait, wait. What happened? <laughs> I've never heard this story and I need to know it. You threw Lynn Manuel Miranda in a trash can in high school? I never slapped him open-handedly like I did some of the other people there, but he he was supposed to sing Bucktown. Like when the kids in my school Wait, as in like, like Home of the like, Original Gun Clappers? In a chorus, yes. When I went to school, I felt like if kids gave me an attitude or they said something slick or smart, I was like, Word, now you gotta sing Bucktown. And if you don't sing Bucktown, then you go in a trash can. <laughs> and I used to have a chorus of people that would sing Bucktown. Now, I look back on my... Why I was Smith & Wesson's me. Bucktown... The, I don't even understand the logic. Like, how did you as a... <laughs> so this is like high school. High school. High school. Listen, I was deaf... When people say that they had a high school bully, I used to bully their high school bully. Fair. Like, <laughs> I, I, I would tell people... Um, I went to school at a really good school. I went to uh, Hunter College High School, and it was oh. because at a very young age, I was trilingual. Um, so I could speak, um, Spanish was my first language, and technically, uh, English is my third language. The second language I learned was French when I was a little kid, because my mother went to Lycee, and in the Peruvian military, uh, you had to choose another language. So my parents met while they were in the Peruvian military, and they both, um, they both uh, speak Spanish and French before they ever learned to speak English. Wait, so you still like parler du français? Oui, je parle français. Uh, je ne parle pas français très bien parce que je parle un peu. Je suis un petit fatigué parce que je ne mange bien pas aujourd'hui. Known you since 2003. I have never known this about you. <laughs> really? You literally could have talked to me at any point in time. Why do you think I got along so easily with all the Haitians? And why do you think I got along so easily when I went to Haiti? Because obviously Creole and like, French yeah. is very different, but it you can understand what people are saying. So and there's a um, lot of like Haitians that speak French because that's right. what. What? So as a little kid, um, I, I grew up in Harlem and I was able to communicate with a lot of different people. So not just, let's say, white, black, Puerto Rican, uh, Dominican people, but I was able to communicate not just with the Haitians, but also if you know anything about Harlem and 116th Street and the east, the east side and central Africa. part of Harlem, there are a lot of West African folks mm -hmm. there, people from Cote d'Ivoire and other countries Senegal. that were, were, I was able to, to communicate with, and it opened the lines of communications to a, a degree that enabled me to learn about their struggles. So from a very young age, mm. I understood that developing countries weren't really poor in the sense that they didn't have the capacity to feed their people. I learned that they were kept in that state because of whatever post-colonial deal that they made. And I know that everybody knows this out there, but there are some young people that don't know that at all. You know, so when they fall victim to propaganda, they start thinking to themselves, oh, it's China or Russia that support dictatorships the most. And when you actually look at it, this is why I think being a part of 
uh, an understanding in a diaspora is incredibly important. Why I think Pan-Africanism is important is because without that, then you wouldn't have the knowledge that it's actually France that supports the most amount of dictatorships yeah. in the world by far. And it's so they can take advantage of the natural resources of West Africa, which have traditionally been incredibly important to the development of Europe. So important that it was Mansa Musa um, and his reign that is actually indirectly or in many ways directly responsible for the European Renaissance, a person who commissioned work and who basically uh, uh, stumbled and destroyed the gold market and raised it back up in Egypt just by making his hajj. So wait, before we go on, so you've identified, you know, like you were smart and you could speak languages, but I already know there's people listening like, right, right. And how he know all wrong. this? He's just talking. How he know all this? Right. No, you I, read like vociferously. I, I, I definitely used to read a lot more than I can do, than I do now. I, I, I'll be honest with you. But one of the things I did that's very important is that I spoke to the people that were in these situations, that were yes. in these places. So also, um, what's interesting is that I was a, a chess champion when I was a little kid. So I went to four okay, national things finals. Gambit. No, so I went to like four <laughs> national finals. But the, the teachers that I had for chess were interesting because one of them was a Dominican who had escaped the dictatorship. Trujillo? Of Trujillo. Yeah. And another one was an anti-Castro Cuban that had his own perspective on leaving Cuba, who was an Afro-Cuban who said, you know, listen, it's not as cut and dry as you think. No revolution can destroy racism. Um, no singular thing can achieve the destruction of a bastion of something like that, which upholds Western society, which is racism, which is in many ways masks classism, because technically uh, uh, capitalists and, and communists, although they tend to front like they disagree on a lot of things at the end of the day they realize that there's no real middle class there are people who are workers and there are people who control the means of production and when you control the means of production that's actually the defining point of your class for example in america people would say someone who makes thirty thousand dollars a year and someone who makes three hundred thousand dollars a year are in a different class but technically, they're both part of the worker class. They do not control the means of their production. And the pandemic stripped them naked of those feelings because you realize that you were worth negative $800,000 when you couldn't get that job and support the payments for your house, for your car, and for all these other things that you have. And it really does speak volumes when you begin to realize that in this, in this country, you really don't have and people use the phrase the left too often. Some people use that phrase so often that if I took it away from them, they would lose half their vocabulary. But the truth is that there is no real left, so to speak, in this country. The there middle. is a center right party, which is the Democratic Party and Joe mm -hmm. Biden being center right of that center right party. And no matter how many times you read biased articles from right wingers that say they're moving more to the left, really, in a global pandemic, you got no health care. Right. But in many ways, I think that these these struggles are played out on a world stage without seeing them from the perspective of an indigenous person or an African person to say, well, what was the difference between communists or capitalists coming to take advantage of your natural resources? 
And one place that we see that naked now is in Afghanistan. And that's incredibly important because during the Russian era, that's what they were there to do. Besides just propping up the, the, the office of Dr. Najib, which if you look him up, was the president under the, the, the government that under regime that was closer to, to Russia or was backed by Russia. And then you see Dr. that when Najib. the Americans invaded and overthrew the Taliban, that literally what became uh, the number one priority with, for them was to secure the natural resources in Afghanistan. And now we see that famous CNN article that's floating around saying, oh, you know, the, Afghanistan is sitting on a trillion worth of, of, of precious metals. And one of those metals, obviously, tungsten, um, the other uh, natural resources would be lithium, uh, magnesium, nickel, copper, all of these things that make incredible conductors and enable us to speak even on this phone. So I definitely don't know much about this whole Afghanistan thing, okay? But I'm going to tell you my theory based sure. on... And you tell me if I'm anywhere close, okay? So Reagan gave them, gave the Taliban, like basically armed the Mujahideen who became the Taliban, right? The, the, the Taliban are different than the Mujahideen. The Taliban are a splinter of what the Mujahideen right. was because they moved to Pakistan. But now, they came I, out I of that. I, right, yeah, but I think it's important to note the difference. I, I, went, I did a... Uh, alive with Lupe, and, and we talked about this. The reason oh that many of them—that must have been a Jesus. That's yeah, a lot we were, of energy. We were, <laughs> uh, he wasn't swinging <laughs> the samurai sword. He was just talking to me. And we, we basically, what we realized is that um, the the Mujahideen, many of them were Sunni Muslims. For those people of the Islamic faith who understand this, and also for those that don't, there are several sects in Islam the way there are in Christianity, and because. Uh, Iran is Shia. When they were escaping to Iran, they were only offered, um, you know, menial labor jobs. Many of the women say they were forced into prostitution. And when they went to Pakistan, because Pakistan was more Sunni Islam, they were offered the opportunity to get education, to get loans from the bank, to start their own businesses, to attend college, just, just about anything that you could imagine a free society would be able to offer its people for a price. And whatever the price is for that labor, it created some kind of advancement and economic and political stability. And in that incubated the Taliban, who then returned um, and became kind of this ethnically Pashtun group of people that said, no, we want this to be the face of Afghanistan. Whereas the Northern Alliance, a place uh, in Panjshir Valley where I had visited, one of many different sections of Northern Alliance, they uh, never allowed the Taliban into their valley, even before America invaded there. And some things, I, I've been called a conspiracy theorist for some of the work that I do, but I just want to review something very quickly. My big three conspiracy theories back in 2003, when I released Revolutionary Volume 2, was that the government... Uh, well, wait, 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 because I want to see, wait, I want to see if my theory is, is aligned. Sure, sure. So, please. I just, on a basic level, feel like this jackass Trump, I mean, there was already jackasses before him, but in the latest, he was like, okay, we're going to get cool with y'all, so we're going to free some of your prisoners, and now we have this quote-unquote peace deal. But really, that was 
him brokering a deal where we're going to put the, y'all can go back in power as long as you give us access to the resources there. We don't really give a fuck about Afghanistan and its people. Right. Is that, is that, that even along the lines of possibly correct? In your opinion? I think if you take Trump out of the equation, you'll see that that would be everybody's bottom line. But Mr. weren't they Obama's, not trying to be... Well, well, okay, tell me about Obama, yeah, because I don't know. Well, Mr. Obama's drone strikes were a big part of turning people against uh, the government and also the callous way in which during the Bush and Obama administration in which the country was run, people think, okay, imagine this. You have a lot of people of color that watch your show and they know for a fact that police are very callous with our lives. There are people who are up on game about how they treat black women's pain in hospitals differently. So imagine the caring and the consideration that an occupying army comprised of the people that couldn't get to be cops and are even younger and less emotionally mature, not to say that all US troops are like this, but the callous way in which they treated uh, a country that they were not only supposed to invade, but then sort of police. You know, the mission changed in many ways. And I had friends that were in the Marines and the Army, and they said to themselves, what's the mission here? Drive up and down the street until somebody shoots at us? You know, we're not a peacekeeping force. We're supposed to knock things over. We're not supposed to stay somewhere, you know? And, and yet we end up staying everywhere. The only difference is we still have 30,000 troops in Japan. We still have you know, 8,000 troops in Taiwan, and we still have 50,000 troops in Germany. But Afghanistan is different. This is the place where empires go to die. And just for some background about Afghanistan, um, it was the place in which Alexander the Great came to the realization that he had fucked up. And he wrote that to his mother. It was the place the British Empire, at the height of its strength in the 1800s, lost three wars. Um, it's the place where the Soviet Union, which was larger than life, which America considered its arch nemesis, lost the war. It became too costly. And finally, it was the place where Mr. Bush, Mr. Obama, Mr. Trump, who dropped a Moab on his first few months, which is the highest ordinance that's not nuclear. So when people say, oh, he was a peacetime president, the lie detector determined that's a lie. Mm -hmm. And also Mr. Biden, who came in and probably didn't want to change anything. But I think that what you're saying is fundamentally correct in the sense that for the United States, they're not there to really build empire in the sense that they need to fly their flag over there. They want the natural resources. They don't necessarily need the same allegiance to empire that used to be part of what we see as colonialism. Now they just say, hey, listen, we need a better deal. The Afghan government before didn't give us a good deal right. for the natural resources we were getting. Now we want a better deal. But even in losing, I remind people, there are other places to gain. As a chess player, you lose a piece, but you gain positioning. So right now, if the Taliban takes over and becomes radically a Sunni uh, uh, Wahhabist government, which they've been influenced a lot by Saudi Arabia, who's on their left? Shia from Iran that Saudi Arabia hates, the, Uyghur, the, the Muslim Uyghurs in China that can also be politicized. There are a lot of plays for America. I think that's what people don't understand about the nature of imperialism. It is literally a hydra. You can cut off one head and the other one will say, okay, well, let's make a deal. For example, the Haitians, they beat Napoleon. 
right? They beat the British. They beat the Spanish. They kicked you all off. So America said, oh, let's play nice and pretend we care about your revolution. And then little by little in the early 1900s, they enacted the Monroe Doctrine, which I remind people is America's hegemonic control of the region. The Monroe Doctrine says that America's agenda takes precedence over all of Europe's agenda on the Western Hemisphere. So the Monroe Doctrine, which comes from 1820 and is now being enforced in the early 20th century, is what my concerns were for the Patriot Act. Not just now, not just what it's being for, what's being used for now, but what it could potentially be used for in the future. And Afghanistan is ground zero for that. So in a sense, you're correct, although, you know, whether it's Trump or whether it's Obama or anybody else, I think 20 years of mismanaging a war and if he was going to really be, you know, the anti-war president, he would have just left immediately. But that's not what he needed to do. He needed to ensure that the right people came to power. And I'll just that's what close I'm saying. On, right. I'll, I'll I'll close on this fact. When it comes to Bush, um, we all know about September 11th. But when it comes to Afghanistan, you need to roll the clock back one day. On September 10th, the leader of the Northern Alliance, a man called Amaz Shad Massoud, was murdered by what people said were Al-Qaeda, but many people uh, have come forward with proof that these individuals belong to the Pakistani ISI that took their orders from Britain and foreign offices. So they claim that, Sh that Shah Massoud was murdered so that Karzai would become president. Now, whether or not you dispute this, I think every Afghan who's watching your show will say without 100% of a doubt, if Shah Massoud had not been murdered, there is no way that Hamid Karzai, Halliburton, puppet for Dick Cheney, CIA asset would have been able to become the president of Afghanistan and give people access to natural gas resources and all the other resources. Now, I'm sorry to say that Mr. Trump and Mr. Obama just continued that lineage. Right. And I've been a very heavy critic of imperialism in that way because I also see the Obama administration as people who continued the Bush doctrine. Now, you remember that idiot Sarah Palin who ran for president with, uh, with yes. John McCain? How Rest can we forget her? I've tried. I remember they asked her on TV, they said, do you support the Bush doctrine? And she didn't know what that was. And while all these liberals were laughing at her, they forgot to realize, oh, the Bush doctrine was when we knock over countries that are opposed to our hegemonic view of the region and replace them with people that are friendly to American interests. Now, what did we do in Egypt? We replaced an old dictator, Mubarak, with a Sisi, a new dictator, right? We overthrew Iraq. We overthrew Libya, mm -hmm. right? We overthrew, excuse me, we, they overthrew I know, Libya. I know, I do that all the time. And, I'm like... But, <laughs> but again, this is our tax But time. it is, I was going to say, tax. but it is kind of we, because it's our money, whether we like it or not, being used. So there is, there's no doubt in my mind that when you become the president, you have to serve America's interests. And on the, the Lupe Fiasco show, I pointed out that in ancient Rome, there was uh, a, a Caesar, right? An Augustus whose name was Lucius Septimus Severus. His mother was an African princess from Carthage and his father was a white Roman senator. And him, even though he was a black Caesar who was written out of history by the racist Reconquista, right? 
that does not mean that he served the interest of Africa, right? He served the interest of Rome. Having a black Caesar does not mean that you have freedom. It means that you have a different Caesar serving the interests of Rome. Mm. It's like a bunch of trees that look at a woodcutter come in there and they say, oh, don't be worried. The handle is one of us. I'm sorry to say, but that is the blinders that we sometimes have when it comes to imperialism. We forget that everybody that is there that's smiling and, oh, man, she killed it wearing that dress. Yeah, standing next to a guy who had 90% of civilians be the victims of drone strikes. And the drone strikes were uh, facilitated with metadata. Now, I I get it. People get emotional when we talk like this. They say, oh, you're blaming him, but you got to And by, I just, so we're clear, we're talking about Obama. Just so we're clear. Okay. Yeah, just so we're clear. And I think that it's important because you can't have a Trump without an Obama. You can't have a Biden without a Trump. These people, although we see them as diametrically opposed to each other, really do serve the same agenda in many ways and definitively in war because the Democrats never met a war they didn't like and they have never, ever stopped anything, uh, any atrocities that happened in Gaza right? They try to overthrow Syria and then play it as if it was uh, some humanitarian mission. Now, Wait. you can make very... Sure. I just want to remind us, we're supposed to talk about answering the call. <laughs> so, so, so when you said a of... humanitarian mission, I'm like... Ah. So, so in 2009... Um, a group of women approached me at a show and they said, listen, we have an idea for an orphanage in Afghanistan. And I said, okay, um, this was at a festival called Rock the Bells in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And I heard them out. I thought the plan was very gutsy. It involved actually going to Afghanistan, um, getting permission from the embassy. And in 2009, um, myself and a friend, that I, I've known for a long time, Carrie, uh, he came with me and we went out to Afghanistan and we uh, set up an orphanage and a school in Kabul that held uh, 18 children. They came to you, though, like they had to come to a show, like they had to seek you out. So why do you think they came to you? Like, what was it about your music? What was it about the work that you were already doing that you feel made them feel like this is somebody who's going to answer our call? Because a lot of people that are listening right now don't know your music. Right, right. Um, I think it was a combination of just the nature of the music that I did and also the fact that I had been involved in kind of other fundraising actions. Um, I mean, people have known me to go into the desert and leave water for migrants. Uh, people have known me to, you know, Well, you went to Peru and built a farm. In, in community action. Right. So I think they just saw the music I did and they hoped that I was really the person that I said I was. Can we just real quick touch on like the music? Because I think for artists like me and you, like that is kind of the springboard, you know, to for some people, artists, their artistry is a springboard to money. I think that that's a byproduct for people like you and I, like the artistry is, is really just the reflection of our character. It's a means by which we express our purpose, our intention. It's not just the means by which we like create commerce. So like, can you just hit people to 
the music you were making and also like why you felt that it was why you needed to make that music because your music was also answering a call. Mm. I feel like there are very few coincidences in life. Um, I feel like we definitely are here for a purpose. Now, I grew up in a religious household, right? But I also grew up learning about a revolutionary Jesus, right? I didn't learn about a meek, quiet Jesus. Mm -hmm. I learned about a brown-skinned man who was a revolutionary. And that's the way he was presented to me. My whole life, I guess I've had these figures in life in which I look at and they want to help people to the detriment of themselves, mm. right? Take another hero from my childhood, Luke Skywalker, right? Uh, he Luke. really wants to save his, and they, they I'm not going to get into how Disney destroyed him, but they, they, this man had to save his pops who was abusive to his mother, who did all these terrible things to him and still saw that there was good in him and wanted to give an opportunity to change. And in many ways, I'm not trying to be Luke Skywalker. <laughs> I'm not trying to be Luke Skywalker, but I understand the sentiment of not giving up on people, right? right? So if I meet people, like I grew up in Harlem, right? So there's always been a, a, a little bit of a divide between African-Americans and between Africans here. And to me, it was crazy, and other people, it was crazy to see, but understanding the, the cultural differences that you encounter, I can see how one community could easily mistake what the other one does for disrespect. Um, I also know that growing up here as a person who, you know, my, my mother's father um, definitely has African ancestry, comes from an Afro-Peruvian family, uh, but at the same time, you know, I grew up looking more like a Latino than I did as a black person. But when I say that, it's interesting because I learned a lot about the interactions between Latino people and black culture. And I tell people all the time who want to hear and who are willing to listen that white Latino people are more racist than white American people. And that's very hard for me to, to say because these are supposed to be my people, but they're not part of my tribe. You might speak my language, but you are not part of my tribe. My ancestors are indigenous and African people. Your ancestors are colonizers, rapists, and thieves who pretended like they were some kind of religious civil servant. And the first thing you came here, right, is you took advantage of little girls, right? And you repainted history to not make it seem like you weren't a pedophile and a rapist and a murderer. So when you look at society and you say, oh, man, Pocahontas was 13 in real life. Why is she being drawn like a 28-year-old model on a runway? No, she was a 13-year-old girl who was kidnapped by John Smith. And then you say, well, wait a minute. Let me look up the Disney princesses. Snow White is 14. The fuck she doing with a 34-year-old prince? And then you realize, oh, throw the whole country away. Thomas Jefferson was a pedophile. George Washington was a pedophile. I'm sorry to offend the people that are wearing like an American do-rag that came into your show, but this is the brutal reality. And you can't come up with the excuse, oh, it was a long time ago. You know, things were different then. Oh, yeah? Let's look at the medieval punishments in Spain and England for rape and murder. You know what they are? Gelding. 
ladies and gentlemen. You know what gelding is? That's when they take hot pincers and they take off you root and stem. So Yee! please don't don't talk to me about the moral authority of that. The thing was that was that you didn't or you you changed the law so that indigenous and African people would not be considered human people. beings, and exactly. therefore your crimes would not apply to them. So I think that's incredibly important to understand, and also that in the difference between indigenous people and African people, we have to point out this. The reason why Latino people are so fucking racist is because they're still living in this racial tier system, right? This The remnant of a racial tier system. And I'm just gonna break it down very, very quickly. The racial tier system is at the very top governed by what they call peninsulares, which would be white people from Europe that moved to the new world, so to speak, but were born in Europe and can prove that. The second class citizens were called the criollos, which were white people who descended directly from from Europe, right? But they were born in the quote unquote new world. Underneath them, right, would be the castizo, which is a combination of the mestizo and a white person. A mestizo is a combination of an indigenous person and a white person, right? And they had all these classifications. But what's very important to know, a mestizo for those people that would want to see the 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 the, the equivalent would be the equivalent of a so-called mulatto, right? So even in black culture, right, as much black blood as you have, you're still black until you can pass for yes. white. In Latino culture, if you could prove that your mom or dad was a castizo, but that your other parent was white, you would then be considered white. Just because so there's, you an pro- upward, okay. there's an upward mobility involved in that. So they think that that's upward mobility. And also that's why you get conservative Latinos who don't care about immigrants and look at the governing body of this country as being immigrants from Europe that get to pass judgment on other immigrants. Well, of course, because who's at the top of your tier? White people from Europe that come here and get to tell you what to do. And that's what disgusts me about their behavior towards African people. How dare you discount the the things that they've done to create the society that you live in and the country that you exist in. And so rather than being one of these quote unquote Latino people that ran away from the African ancestry he had or ran away from the indigenous ancestry, it's something that I chose to accept and to look into and say, no, I want to develop that part of myself. I want to understand, okay, well, from a Native American's perspective, what's the difference between a liberal and a conservative European? What is that difference, right? Well, to them, they say, well, one of them wanted to genocide us outright and take our land. And the other ones wanted to keep some of us alive so we could fight against others, right? And be part of their army, right? Give us the right to serve. And then little by little incorporate us the way they wanted to in our society. And people forget the lesson of Marcus Garvey, which was very important. He asked, before people talk about the boats and the failure and the suits and all this other stuff, he asked a very, very important question to African people. He said, you have choices. Do you want to go back to Africa? Do you want a state of your own for black people here in the United States? Or do you want to just try to get along with white folks? And unfortunately, a lot of people chose option three. Number three. And I think that 
for some people, they didn't have that option. They saw that there were no other options. They felt like that's the only other option. Yes, that's still the case. Right. But I think when we then fast forward to the civil rights movement, we discover something very ugly about the aftermath of that, in which we realize, hey, uh, really rich Black and Latino people want to be around broke Black and Latino people about as much as really rich white people want to be around really broke white people. And that became, unfortunately, the legacy of what was left behind, because integration was about integrating Black dollars. Integration was about integrating uh, uh, the greatest warriors from indigenous society into your army. And that's why you honor us by calling yourself Tomahawk missiles and Apache helicopters and all this. Yeah, you know who held you back for all those hundreds of years, right? You would have pushed from one side of the sea to the other in 1492 if you could, but it wasn't easy. And I think that's what's missing about our history, that we have to confront the myth that nobody, nobody, enslaves a person easier, right? There's a famous speech by, uh, I believe his name is Castorix. He was a, a, a king of the Gauls that was uh, captured by Rome. And he said to them, you may capture a man, you may enslave him, but be prepared to spend the rest of your life with your foot on his neck. Because the moment you take it off, whether you consider that man a man or not, he is a man and he will rise and he will take your neck. And he will take what is his. Well, that's Palestine. Uh, so that's I, I Palestine. Like, like being, I, that's you, why I don't want to hear anyone talk to me about Hezbollah. I'm like, I mean, wh- you, you're trying to police the way that people fight back, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> like, I, listen, I tell people all the time the the the, the one movie that I really want to see black filmmakers make is a, a a huge blockbuster about the Haitian Revolution. And you should include everything in it the way that... I just want to make a point that Henri Christophe of the Haitian Revolution was born in Grenada. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's important also to note that Francois Toussaint, um, who was in Haiti, supported uh, Simon Bolivar, who was uh, Latin America's great... He sent him howitzers and weapons. He sent him cannons. He sent him uh, 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 ammunition. So the sentiment was not returned, right? We helped you get your freedom, but we're not going to help you because he unfortunately miscalculated and didn't realize that the great Latin American revolution for freedom, which comes from San Martin and from, uh, uh, from Simon Bolivar, was a revolution that was run by criollos, not by peninsulares against their government, but run by white people that were the direct descendants of Europeans who had their interest in mind. Mm. And after that revolution happened, black people went back to the fields and indigenous people went back to the mines. And that's where they continued to die and have incredibly short lifespans. And everything was normalized in this way. The caste system was normalized in this way. So when I hear people talking shit about India, oh, they have a caste system. I say, no fool. We have a caste system here. Absolutely. Haiti's uh, history is also important because they created this mulatto class of people that they thought they could turn against white folks. And what's interesting is this mulatto class that they invented 
ended up becoming part of what we call now today the Dominican Republic. Now, this is a very, very touchy but topic. But we are not talking about answering the call. This is what I knew was going to happen. You were just going to give us a history lesson. Answer, but this is answering the call. You know why? Because why? people don't want to talk about this shit, but they have to answer the call. <laughs> to answer the call to confront your inner demons, right? This is why I always tell people it's very suspect to me that DR celebrates its, its independence from Haitian rule but does not celebrate its independence from, from Spanish rule. Oh. oh, right. We we see the Spanish in Peru as the oppressor. We yes. see them as the people that came and did this horrible thing to us, whereas they see them as the people that brought order to society, right? Who brought Christianization to a demonic, you know, Savage devil worshiping, land. whatever. Right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, we have to say something. The Aztecs stopped cutting people's heart out in like 1560. And the reasons for it were varied. But people didn't stop burning people at the stake in the name of Jesus until well into the 1900s. And I feel like it's important to note that throughout history, people have seen Christ in so many different ways based on his uh, introduction to them, right? The Viking herd did not see Jesus as a liberator. They saw Jesus as a Roman blood god. That's why they used to raid the coasts of England and take the possession of the, the, the monasteries and stuff. They would say to themselves, this is not a god of peace. This man's image is raised in a banner of war every single time he comes. They worship his dead body and they eat his flesh and then they kill and rape other people. I don't have any respect for their god. Kill them and take their head off and put it in a pile of the room, in a corner of the room. And then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get on my little boat and I'm going to eat a giant turkey leg and sail home with all their shit. So you get this kind of naked understanding of it. But in looking at the Viking herd, you also see the first intercontinental slave trade in the 6th and 7th century before Europeans had any of their shit together, right? When they were recovering from the fall of Rome in 476 AD, excuse me, Western Rome. What you see there is a Viking her taking women from the shores of Ireland and Scotland and selling them to the Arab slave markets in Cairo and getting their weight in silver for them. So when people talk about that and the, the, the Christian influence in the slave trade also, the first uh, ship, and you know this, to leave uh, uh, Africa with slaves bound for Europe was called the good ship Jesus, Jesus of Lubeck. So in many ways, I think my parents were conflicted in showing me a religion and saying, oh, this is the white, you know, good Jesus. No, they showed me this is Jesus, not the image that you see of like the old portraits and stuff like that, which are just nostalgic and part of, I guess, family history. But they're there as a mirror to say this is what it wasn't. And the person that it was, was an angry, dark skinned rabbi from Nazareth that said, no, this is enough, and walked into a Chase Bank and fucked the place up, right? He would be arrested nowadays. They would be like insane Dominican Hebrew breaks into Chase Bank and destroys it and gets crucified on the stand and then gets elected. You know, this is the reality that we live in. But we have to ask ourselves, who are you in the Bible? And unfortunately, white conservatives think that they're the Hebrews. But they're the Romans. Absolutely. You see what I mean? 
it's like that 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 understanding of yourself. Are you sure? I feel like they know they're the Romans. I don't think that they think they do. I think they think they're oppressed, and I think that everybody in this society has this image that they're fighting against something. Well, this is so true. they have to they have to believe that they're fighting for a genuine cause, that their world is coming to an end, right? Many of them are fighting imaginary communism when in reality it's unbridled capitalism, Yes, right? And, you know, then we have disinformation on the internet, which is now rampant, which I think was done on purpose by this government because there was just too much, too many things that came out that were, you know, not in sync with how they wanted people to digest the late Republic in the United States. You know, it, it is no longer the dominant world power, right? It, it, and in 19, what, 72, especially after, excuse me, let's go with 94, when the fall of Russia, the fall of the USSR and the splintering of the Russian Federation. We were the dominant world power. We're not anymore. We have to share the stage with people. We can't just do what we want. You know, the, the South China Sea, which is an area the size of Texas, was annexed by China. And America had to sit on its hands and do nothing, right? We overthrew the Ukraine, right, under the Obama regime. And then we overthrew Afghanistan under Bush. People forget Afghanistan has a border with China. Mm-hmm. Ukraine is part of the Russian homeland. It would be the equivalent of China or Russia overthrowing Mexico or Canada and saying, oh, we're going to put hundreds of thousands of troops right here to lean on you, to kind of muscle you, to let you know we're still in the region. And this is kind of where America is right now, in my mind, kind of waning influence, still incredibly powerful enemy, not someone you want beef with, but someone who's managing a lot of different problems right now. And unfortunately, tried to gain PR by putting a a black Caesar in charge, but it did not change the nature of Rome. Then they put a businessman and a a game show host to try and distract people from the waning influence of America. You know, let's watch this idiot on TV say things that are outlandish and foolish. And I remind people something very important about Mr. Trump. He did not get elected with conservative talking points. He got elected with what people call far left talking points. He attacked Hillary Clinton from the left. He attacked Bernie Sanders by saying, oh, you're so We want a leftist perspective, right? When in reality, you were given a small loan of a million dollars, which is in 1980, whatever, which is equivalent to $17 million, which on a housing market is equivalent to like 250 million. So when you look at it, you'll see people that begin to identify with a political figure very in a cultish way. Yes. And I think it hurts people when you point out that they're doing that and then you say, well, wait a minute. If you want to see a cult of people, I'll show you the difference between one cult and the other, right? Mr. Obama made spineless neoliberals who never cared about anybody's life feel they like they were progressives. And Mr. Trump made stupid people feel smart feel like they knew something about government and they started calling everything that was left of hunting the homeless for sport communism. When in reality, you have to recognize that this government and this capitalist system has failed in America multiple times. The last time being with the massive bailouts. 
So then what do we, what, how do we answer the call? Like I've called you before and been like, what are we, what are we supposed to be doing? <laughs> I have called you before. People will hit me like, Amanda, what, what do we need to do? And everyone should know that like the person you're calling is calling someone else too. Like, I know that Malcolm was calling Maya like, man, shit is wild out here. Malcolm was calling Dick Gregory like, shit is wild out here. When you give us all of this backstory, we have all this history. And I know a lot of us are here in the present day, which is just a weird time, right? Like this world we're in right now is like, I feel like I've adapted, but I feel like I'm just living on a, how do I put it? I'm living till, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm in a cloud. Like, I don't really know. I don't feel like I'm really as grounded as I would like to feel because the level of uncertainty that we're existing in is more present, I feel, than it's ever been. It's always been there, but I feel like we could trick ourselves a lot more prior to. So when we talk about you know, not only the reality of our world, but also the reality of all the things that you're talking about and the reality that a lot of us only became privy to these things and to the grandeur of these things and to our involvement in these things. You know, people people thought Palestine just like popped off. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, this has been going on. This is not new. You know, like you said, Afghanistan, like this is great. Like this is 80s. This is going way, 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 way back. And I just also want to just point this out to people. It's like, we always talk about history, but we forget that like the eighties is now history. <laughs> like, That's true. you know, like, it's like, so I was, I was, uh, I had a development meeting the other day and we were talking about just like nostalgia. And it was like, yeah, like there's a new old school. The two thousands is nostalgia now. Like, so mm-hmm. as we continue moving, there's new quote unquote history that we need to be considering. And it can be very overwhelming in terms of deciding and determining where do we fit in how do we quote unquote answer the call? And when you tell me that like, you know, women came to you from Afghanistan to say like, Hey, can you start an orphanage? I know there's a lot of people listening. They're like, if someone came to me asking for me to start an orphanage, I wouldn't know what the fuck to do. So. Well, here's the, here's the trick. I didn't know what the fuck to do. Fair. And that's important to acknowledge. I have no experience in building an orphanage. So what I did was meet with people who built orphanages um, I talked to people who had built them in Afghanistan, uh, not in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan. Then I talked to someone who had actually ventured uh, to Afghanistan. I got a letter of recommendation from several imams that were here. We did a fundraiser. We raised about $120,000. Oh, wow. But we played a lot of this by ear, right? How a long lot did of this, all of this take? Roughly, I would say about a year, eight, eight months to a year. Did you immediately answer the call or did you like say like, you know what? I got to sit on this first. I think I've always been a pragmatic person and I I used to have a, I I used to have a, I used to have a room in my old apartment where, uh, where I owned the place. So I could do this. Please don't try this. If you're renting. Um, I used to just write on the walls. I just write on the walls, write all my rhymes, everything. There was one room with everything written on the walls. And one thing that was written on the wall, it said, do not respond immediately if you don't have to, because you might respond out of emotion rather than considering all the factors. Like I used to assume malice from people. Ditto. And now I, and now I assume ignorance from people <laughs> instead of malice. And it's given me inner peace 
it, it's it's listen, because it, 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 it alleviates the feeling of needing to defend. Um, but I think, you know, in this case, um, you know, I met with a lot of different people, um, people who had extremely difficult circumstances leaving Afghanistan. And I think that, you know, for me, it just boiled down to, do I have the power to do this? And something said, yeah, you absolutely do. You can change these people's lives. And just so you understand how real and how painful this is to me, all of the children from the orphanage that were little kids were like anywhere from age six to age 11 when I was there in 2009, all of them got out to India except one. And um, his name was Wahid, and he was killed by the Taliban because they murdered his brother in an ambush. And in Afghan society, honor is everything to people. And they said, come with us to India, come back with us, do not, do not stay. And he said, no, these people killed my brother. I will never have peace with the Taliban. I will never make peace. I will not run away. And they said, it's not running away. We're, we're going to live our lives. We're going to go to school. Like these were, they, they were grew up like brothers, all of them. And he said, no. And while he'd stayed behind and he was killed last year, he became a martyr and um, rest in peace to him. And you can't tell a kid what to do when he becomes 18, he becomes his own man. You try to tell him, right? But especially in a country like that where, you know, people forget when you can stand on your own two feet at 16, when you can hold a weapon, when you can tell someone, here's, you know, 200 Afghani, here's my rent, get the fuck out of here. You a man to them. They don't, they, you know, you, you can go get married now. You, then that society kind of is, is like when I saw Afghanistan, I said, oh my God, if there's an apocalypse, these people are going to survive because they taught me that it's not about, war is not about who can try and kill the most people, it's who can endure the most suffering. Yes. Right? And, and, and for a conventional army, they don't need to, they, they need to win the war. For a guerrilla, they just need to survive. They need to not lose and they win. In order for the conventional army to, in order for America to win in Afghanistan, it had to win. In order for the Taliban to win in Afghanistan, they just had to not lose. And let me just be very clear, Henry Kissinger stole that quote from someone else. But the point that I'm trying to make is that in these societies, we have to remember, we have outsuffered all the people that tried to snuff us out. If you have anything left of black culture in this country, someone tried to snuff it out. If you have anything left of some indigenous culture in this country, remember, someone tried to snuff it out. You don't have that by, 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 by someone granting that to you. You have that by someone dying for that mm-hmm. for you. And I think that, that definitely touches the heart. But in many ways, that's why I look at the government as being a self-serving unit Instead of looking at it like, oh, everything's changed now because there's a fake liberal there or everything's changed now because there's a fake Christian uh, uh, conservative there. No, these people have different agendas. But when you talk about, oh, they're the right or the left wing of the same bird. And I say, well, 
that wing affects different people in different ways. It does something for different people. And when we talk about agendas, they certainly have an agenda. And I think the, the part that infuriates Black and Latino people is when we say, well, wait a minute. The, all these different groups have agendas. They all have agendas. And I think what they're really mad at, because I don't assume malice, I assume ignorance, is that we don't have an agenda, is that we can't get our agenda together, is that when we talk about reparations, then I say to people, let's be honest. And let's say to Black and Latino people, let's have an honest conversation. What Africans in this country are asking for is technically not reparations. I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to explain why. What they're technically asking for is not reparations. It's the other half of reparations, right? Reparations was already paid out in the United States. And I want your public and the people who listen to your show to know this, if you've gotten this far without changing the channel. Reparations was already paid in this country to slave owners to mm -hmm. compensate the loss of property after mm -hmm. the Emancipation Proclamation. In other words, these people had the money to pay these giant companies who then metamorphosized into the giant financial institutions that come from this country. So when we talk about reparations, most of the reparations actually won't come from your pocket out of your family dollar account. No, it doesn't come from you. It comes from the giant trillion dollar organizations who built everything that they have, who built their stock exchange and their bank and everything they have, not on the backs of black people, but with the blood of black people who were the capital for capitalism. So I I just did a song with Dave Banner, with David Banner oh, and Mike God, Mike energy, about this. energy. About this. So we, we going in. That's so a lot me. of beard rap. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. That's no, a lot of beard rap. You really made me show off my gold tooth. <laughs> you really made me show off my gold tooth just now. Are you wildin'? <laughs> The script. So we have a segment on the show called The Script where we provide folks with like supplementary materials that support, you know, their further so they can have like further access to information that um, can guide them in the conversation that we're having. Now, I cannot stand when people ask me for a book list. People do this all the time. They'll like hit me up, like, hey, can you give me a book list? I don't have a book list prepared. I don't have a syllabus, a curriculum, etc. You be having books <laughs> off top though, to be <laughs> as he rises from his throne. He be having books on deck. Like, well, first you gotta read this. I actually have a book from you in here that I found. Um, and it was about th the Arab role in slavery. Um and it is from you. Uh, but I, any books, any documentaries, first of all, what album of yours do you feel like if people want to get into understanding the man who's been speaking to us for an hour, where do they start in your music? I mean, sometimes I would stay start at the beginning, um, in 2001 with revolutionary, um, volume one. I think that's, a uh, a very good way, way to start. Um, I think also if they want to hear the latest work of mine, it was a free album called The Martyr that they can find 
um, anywhere online. And believe me, I was one of these people that when individuals were pirating material, I didn't see it as a threat. I saw it as uh, an advantage for myself as an independent artist who's now totally on his own, who has his own label, who has everything, um, who's moved on from every situation that he's, he's been in um, and said to himself, no, 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 no. Um, we're building this up from the ground up. And you asked about books. Okay, this is a good book, The Sword and the Dollar by Michael Parenti. Um, this is a book that we all need to read because, man, there's so many issues with children nowadays and there's so many people exploiting them for their own personal benefit and mm-hmm. using them as a political football. Yes. This is an important book. The Disappearance of Childhood. Okay. I wasn't expecting that one by Neil Postman. All right. And number three, since people love history, here we go with the classic, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. The classic. Y'all have seen this book. It's got the white hands holding Africa, ripping it apart, you know. I think there's one more thing we have to say specifically about the, the, the West African slave trade, just to make this absolutely clear. When people repeat these racist lies like, oh, you guys just sold yourself into slavery. Um, the majority of African kingdoms in West Africa during the 14th, 15th, 16th century were very splintered. So whenever there was a king that would not continue the human trafficking trade, uh, the forces of Europe being Portugal, Spain, France, uh, England, the Dutch, conspired against that individual to remove them and replace them with someone that would continue the human trafficking trade. So please don't put it and make it seem like, oh, yeah, nigga, so down. Okay. Um, we, we, we can have that conversation, but when we study history and we see the nature of how this business was set up, because it was a business for years, the idea that the legality of a person was challenged so business could continue, right? In the same way that it bothers me that people then look at a piece of paper that would say, oh, I'm, I'm, I believe in freedom and everything, but that piece of paper makes me able to treat you like less than a human being and put you in a cage and throw you away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, in a sense, is more than disturbing to me. And that was the real litmus test for freedom and for fascism in this country to me. I said, wow, you're willing to tolerate children in cages. And now we say to ourselves, oh, you know, I see these kind of straw man arguments. Well, they've always held our people in cages or put this and that. And I say, wow, if we're talking about the the nature of it, the way that they got to be able to do that to you is by making sure that indigenous and African people were separated. Because every time that they've been united, it's been the kryptonite for white supremacy. And I feel like in many ways, what I open myself to is to have conversations with those people who may not necessarily be the easiest people to talk to. But believe me, in Harlem. Don't be so mean. No, no, but you know what it is? In Harlem, I'm used to that. In Harlem, I, I used to sit down, I would talk to the five percenters, I would talk to people from from uh uh what you call from the Israelites. I would have these conversations with them because I would then say, okay, well, what do you consider like the agenda of the United States? Is it, it you say that it's satanic, right? So 
then what is the, the, the benefit for us being here at all, right? If we participate in this, then aren't we participating in Satanism? And what is Satanism, right? Because God in the Bible isn't a non-forgiving God in many times. He will smite the whole city, right? Yes. Um, also, I think one important thing to recognize is that for me, I never turned down a conversation with people. And I've had the benefit of being able to reach out to various communities and they'll say, well, let me invite this brother on my show. Let me, let me talk to him here. Let, let, let me invite him to the Black YouTube channel. And I'll, I'll go to them because I'll say, man, this is the place where we need to have these conversations. Also, it's because I stay on code. And that code is not the, the, in, the just the indigenous or the Black code. I stay on the warrior code. Right. So when when Africa Bambata was accused of being a, a, a child molester, I said, I'm going to go talk to the people who this happened to. And if you tell me that this is true, then I will denounce him. Right. I will say, no, you are. I, I cannot rock with you and everybody that makes excuses for you because they used to see you as a father figure. I can't rock with that. When I see people who. And I say this again because I, 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 I was incarcerated as a kid for, for people who want to read my story. But I saw the fact that the nation of Islam could reform a lot of people, right? Yeah. They would reform a murderer. They would reform a drug dealer. They would reform a drug addict. But if you are a rapist or you are a child molester, you are excommunicated. We do not rock with you. You cannot be part of the tribe. And I think that that encompasses kind of answering the call that you cannot save the world, sister, but you can take care of your tribe, right? Everybody watching this show with their family, that's your tribe. That's who you got to take care of. That's who you're responsible to. Now, can we collectively take care of each other? Yes. But until we take care of ourselves, if we're not in good standing, all we become is a detriment to everybody else that's with us. Now, that is the nature of guerrilla warfare. The mines in Afghanistan were not meant to kill. They were meant to maim. They were meant to blow your leg off at the knee. Why? Because you're going to be demoralized and having to carry. It takes four men to carry that man. Because now we have a blast that tells us where you are. Because if we can't carry him and we have to shoot him, it immediately demoralizes the troops. They say, wait a minute, when it comes to me, I, I, I'm, I'm putting my heart and soul in this revolution. So when I get blown, my leg blown off, you, y'all just going to shoot me in the head like some old cow? Nah. Again, we have to understand that whoever designed this system for us, they have documented data on human beings the way Nazis do, right? Keep it real. This is an unfortunate truth. We have a lot of medical knowledge because of those Nazi experiments. Know. We know at what point a person freezes to death. We know at what point a person will boil in water because all of these experiments were done on human beings. Again, we can say, and for the people who would like to say no technique, that's also with Africans, absolutely, 100%, that's true. Also, we can say that whatever uh, a political design Europeans have as the inheritors of the American empire, as opposed to these little European enclaves where they just took land, they tested the system on indigenous people first. They tested what they wanted to do to everybody. And so when I say 
that there has to be a litmus test that we see. I say they always test the system on people with the least amount of political representation. And that is when I see people say, oh, wait a minute. No, I'm going to get my community right. So they tested this idea that you shouldn't care about people with AIDS. And what was the gay community's response? Oh, no, you're going to care. You're going to fucking care. I'm going to remind you of how many times you called AIDS a gay plague, how much you spit on us and all this. When in reality, I'm not saying that people should adopt that blueprint. But what I'm saying is that they should find their own blueprint yes. for taking the way that they were marginalized yes. and saying, well, wait a minute. You have lied and consistently said that we were part of this country. That's not true. We did not become a democracy until 1967. Technically, that's 100% true. Also, when you come up with criticisms of feminism, that's legitimate. When you look at the founders of feminism, where as it, it, as it, refers to now and Cordelia and the new generation of people. Sure. That's well, people, a, call, have a people like to call feminism at this point. Any woman who says, nah, <laughs> like right, people I, love to call it, me but, like you're a feminist. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I just, I'm not here for the, but, but I think, but I think what has to be pointed out is that there is a legitimate criticism to be had about the origin of those things. Of course. And, and, and see, and see that white women's agenda was, to get votes, not to get votes. Not to get equality, no. Right, not to get equality. And unfortunately, all of the people that we look at, like Susan B. Anthony and the rest of these people, they were unabashed racists, many of them. And when you look at the Margaret Sangers of the world and the people who claim to have the best interests of people at, and, and, in heart to us, I think that's important. What also needs to be said is we, What also needs to be said is that we have to end the show. <laughs> No. <laughs> yes. I was going to say this. I was going to say this. I noticed on Malcolm's birthday, a lot of people say, oh, look, Malcolm hated liberals. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah. But he loved the left. I mean, you, he was there with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. He didn't hate the left. He hated the centrist liberals yeah. in the United States because he didn't think that they were honest people but about wanting not. liberation. They're, they're not. not. And that's why, you know, for me... It was like, I want to get Trump out. And I feel like people mistook that to mean that I was like, you know, that I believed in. Uh, in Jim Crow Joe? That I believed in, in Joe and Kamala as saviors. And it's like the only part, the only thing I believed in them doing was in not being the physical being of Donald Trump. Like that's it. And I feel like what we are, what we're finding ourselves in is this place where, again, we are just not, we are, it is centrist, like, and centrist in America is really far to the right. Right. So. Yeah. And that's the 9-11 effect when all politics shifted to the right and the people that were supposed to be leftist found themselves all the way on the left. The people on the right found themselves in the center. And then the kooks, <laughs> that were just lunatics found themselves at the the epicenter of the right wing. And so now and I, now I have and now hold now. office people like uh this Marjorie lady and you know it's just beyond my scope of comprehension. But I knew and I was correct. I would not be saying much on this episode. Oh. <laughs> because I knew that once the floor is open, you will lead us. Um 
I really just, you know, I've I've always appreciated our friendship. I was always I've always appreciated your mind. I've always appreciated your authenticity and your willingness to speak like this in any room, uh, on any mic. And I think that's why you fuck with me because you know I'm the same way. Uh, <laughs> I don't care who there. If it needs to be said, it's gonna be said. Um, which right. I think is uh, incredibly important considering the fact that, you know, there are more calls than ever to be answered in the sense that I feel like more people's voices need to be raised and more people's uh, struggles need to be addressed. And America for a long time has lived behind this uh, very hubris ridden idea that like whatever we're going through is the most, um, and that whatever we're not going through is because we deserve not to go through it. And it, uh, ultimately it's like, no, we're a part of an entire fucking world, which is crazy. Uh, because I know that as aware as I am about this world, I find myself on a regular basis trying to figure out like, okay, what way can I answer the call? But I actually do have a call in one minute that I have to answer. Um, and so, which is why we have to go. <laughs> but I love you. I love you. The last dose. I would just leave the people with this one gem that you can't treat other people right until you start treating yourself right. That you can't love somebody until you love yourself and that you never really know somebody until they don't get what they want from you. And for those of you that are watching with your loved one or your significant other or somebody, just keep that in mind. I'm not trying to destroy your household. I'm trying to make you have an honest conversation with yourself that if you're gonna act like that the moment you don't get what you want, then it was never love. It was never family. It was never friendship. It was just business. That's it. And there you have it. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Adios. Adios. Uh, te quiero. Das vidanya. Das vidanya. Yes. Spasiba. I love you, sister. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank and you. to everybody out there watching, thank you very much. And um, if I ever missed anything or I didn't expound on something or you thought that I, I overlooked something or I minimized it, you know, feel free to, to contact me or DM me on social media and I can clarify any comments or anything that I said that uh, that needs clarification. And I've always had an open channel and you can you can see me at uh, at Tech Immortal at IG mm -hmm. um, or Immortal Tech on Twitter, um, Tech Immortal on Facebook and the, the charity that we have for elderly people in Harlem and Brooklyn. Um, we, we work through NYCHA, but we have our own um uh, supply system and the at is rebel army runs rebel spelled r-e-b-e-l army a-r-m-y runs r-u-n-s come check us out call them <laughs> a, podca <clears throat> a podcast network